So I got a question. How does it feel to think you're receiving the real thing, but only to find out you've been given a fake? How does it feel to have an expectation that you're getting the authentic to only find out you've received the counterfeit? Now, what do I mean by this? Let me give you a couple examples. So, so husbands, you remember what it was like when you were about to pop the question to your soon-to-be wife. You were working really hard, adding in these hours just so you could buy her the perfect ring. And you thought about it. You say, man, I know she likes this cut, and I'm going to get this one. She's going to love it. So let's just say you find the ring, and you pop the question, and she says, yes. But then three weeks later, she's like, hey, boo, uh, my finger's green. And this diamond is turning purple. I don't think it's supposed to do that. How would that feel? Or let me give you another example. Some of us in here love saving things. We love to save things so long that we're probably never going to use it again. Now, I'm not calling people a hoarder. I'm not calling you that. Now, in my, in my family, my wife and I are different. See, me, I will throw everything away just so we don't have a mess. Now, and my wife would say, Jeff, you know you've almost thrown a $200 check away because you wanted to empty the trash. This is true. Now, my wife, on the other hand, loves to save things just in case we might need it. So if you like that, let's say you had a garage sale finally. You know what? We're going to get rid of some of this stuff we haven't used. We're going to clean up shop. And you have this garage sale. And you're killing it. You sell 90 to 95% of the stuff that you want to sell. And at the end of the day, you're counting the money like, man, we made some good profit. It was good to clean up. And then you go to the bank, take it to the teller, and you hand it to them. And they're like, ma'am, sir, I'm sorry, uh, this is counterfeit. We can't do nothing with this. How would that feel? There's something devastating about expecting the real thing only to find out that it's a fake. Now, if you're tracking with me, you can guess how this relates to our text today in James. This is exactly what James wants to warn us about in his letter. James is warning the church about the dangers of a fake faith that can masquerade itself as authentic. In other words, our text today is meant to warn believers about the dangers of a dead faith. Now, in order to break this text down today, we're going to ask three critical questions about faith. First, can faith save? Second, how does faith work? And then third, and finally, what is dead faith? With that, let's dig in. Can faith save? Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, before we can answer this question on what saving faith is, I want to first address a common misunderstanding on the book of James. Many people have taken James and put him against the theology of someone like the Apostle Paul. The argument typically goes something like, hey, James thinks we're saved by works, but Paul thinks we're saved by faith. And as you can logically conclude, well, then the question becomes, well, who do you agree with? Do you agree with Paul or do you agree with James? Are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? Well, I want to nip that in the bud before we go forward. Paul and James are in complete, utter agreement on what it means and the doctrine of soteriology. In other words, Paul and James are both agreements about how a sinner is to be saved from their sin. Actually, I'm going to take it one step further and say that James and Paul are actually tag-teaming the subject of salvation, lest someone try to wiggle through the teachings of Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's look again at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the text that we read earlier. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul makes it abundantly clear how one is saved. You're saved by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with your works. Paul doesn't care how righteous you think you are, how you compare to others, how many good deeds you do. That does not save you or gain you favor in a holy and righteous God's eyes. This is the reality of what Scripture says. You cannot be saved based off your good works. The classic courtroom analogy is actually very helpful. If you've heard it before, say you have this person, this person that's broken laws their entire life. Let's say they've, they've escaped on their taxes, they've robbed people, they've killed people, they've broken all these laws. And finally, they go to court and they're being judged. And they walk before the judge after all these crimes they committed. And the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? And the criminal stands up and they say, you know what? I know I've done a lot of bad things. I've done a lot of bad things, but I've also did some good. I mean, like, I, I, I've, I was nice to my siblings when I was younger. I help old ladies across the street. Like, I mean, I do a lot of good deeds. I even give money to the poor sometimes. Matter of fact, when I'm in traffic on the highway, I let people cut in front of me all the time. There's some people in College Park that don't do that. <laughs> so, so, Judge, you got to understand, I do good as well. Now, what would this just and righteous judge say? He said, my friend, I can't judge you based off of the good things you've done. In order for me to be just, I must judge you for your wrongs, for the crimes you've committed. For him to let this person go, it would be unjust. Justice has to be given for the crimes committed. And this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. All of us in God's courtroom has broken his law. None of our hands are clean. The Bible says there's none good, not one. We've all sinned and broken God's law in some way, and therefore God in his justice would be just to punish us. And this is what happens in the courtroom. We stand there guilty, and then Jesus steps in. Jesus steps in this courtroom and says, I'm the innocent son of God. I'm going to take their punishment and give them my innocent that they could be forgiven. This is the gospel. This is what happens. So this is what Paul is explaining in Ephesians. You can't boast when it comes to being saved because it has nothing to do with you. If it did, we would still be paying for the punishment of our crimes. And what avenue do we receive this salvation or this gospel? Paul says it is by faith. James agrees. Faith or believing in what Jesus done in his death, burial, and resurrections is how we are saved. Therefore, we cannot boast in our works or good deeds. But this brings us back to James to bring us to our text today. Well, how does that fit with what we read here in James? Let me remind you of verse 14. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Beloved, James isn't challenging Paul on if we're saved by faith alone in Christ. That's not what he's doing. Remember, just a couple verses ago in James, Mark went over it last week. James says that if you fail to keep one aspect of the law, you're guilty of breaking them all. That's him acknowledging the uselessness of good works in saving us. However, James is challenging the type of faith one must have in order to be saved. What he's showing is that the faith that Paul talks about in Ephesians, the faith that we hear about in the Gospels, it's the same faith that he's talking about here, but it's not an acknowledgement about facts. That's not what he's talking about, faith. But faith, if it's authentic, it will naturally lead to good works. 
This is why James says it like this in verse 18. He says, some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, but I will show you my faith by my works. James is like, I'll show you that I really believe this gospel message because my actions will naturally follow what I say I believe. As theologians have said it in the past, we are saved by faith alone, but true saving faith is never alone. It's the same thing when Jesus says it like this. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you love me, you might keep my commandments. Or he doesn't say, hey, show me you love me by keeping some commandments. That's not what he says. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Evidence of love for Jesus that your life will bleed for him. That's what it says. Or 1 John chapter 2 says it this way. And by this we have come to know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. There is a order to this. True faith will produce good works. So that leads us back to our question, can faith save? And James, like the rest of the writers of scriptures, emphatically says, Yes, but the question one must ask is, do you have true and saving faith? The way we know the difference actually leads us to our second point or our second question, how does faith work? How does faith work? Let's look back at verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So James continues by giving this warning, but now he's going to give you a practical example of faith not working. Before he can tell you what true faith looks like, we must first see it not working. And how does James does, he do, do this? He does this by giving you a hypothetical situation that should be very ironic to the listener. Anyone with a brain should be able to see James' situation and say, man, that's foolish. How could you respond that way? But, but here's the reality. We probably look at this text and say, yeah, man, why would they answer like that? Why would they not help this brother? But James isn't just talking to some dated people group. This message is relevant for then and today. We may not say the same thing as James' audience, we got our own ways of actually saying the same thing. So what do they say? They see their brother or sister in need, and they say, go in peace, be warm, and filled. And then they don't help. Now, that was the Christianese of their day. It was religious jargon in order to sound real spiritual, but in actuality, you weren't doing anything to even meet the need of your brother. Now, I'm with y'all, y'all. We all together in this. Like, we would never do something like that. Us, 21st century, College part, we would never sound like them. Yet we got similar things that sound something like this. You see your brother or sister in need, you say, man, I'm sorry to hear that, bro. I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. Or, sis, that's so hard. I can't imagine what you're going through. Understand? Or, you know what? I see your situation, bro. I see your situation. Have you heard of Dave Ramsey? Like, I'm going to tell you about Dave Ramsey. Like, Dave Ramsey changed my life. You know what? I guarantee you, listen to Dave Ramsey, he could change your whole situation. Or, hey, friend, let me know if you need something. You know, just let me know. If you need something, just let me know. And this is where James throws his hands up in the air. 
He's like, it's obvious this brother or sister needs something. You don't need a seminary degree to see that your brother or sister is in need. If you see your brother or sister in need, it shouldn't be gymnastics in order for you to help them. Now, I, I want to let's not overlook something about this passage. James doesn't address why this brother or sister is in need. He doesn't address that. He doesn't say, hey, first find out why they're in the predicament they're in, then you help them. Now, that's not what he does. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for wise financial stewardship. There is definitely a place for that conversation, but that's not what James is addressing. James is addressing a people who would rather talk the talk, but it's a lot harder for them to put their actions where their mouth is. Now, if we're all honest, we've all struggled with this or we can struggle with something like this. Let me use myself for an example. Like, I've said this before, but if you know me, if there's anybody in this room that actually knows me personally, you know I love theology. Like me, I, I love it to such a degree. It's like, man, I, I'm interested in reading theology. It's not just for school. I'll be by myself like a nerd in my office reading some weird theological paper. I enjoy it. I love it. Like, that's easy for me. But let me tell you something that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder after I've had a long work day and I go home and my three-year-old son is like, hey, daddy, let's play tag. I'm like, man, I'm tired. Now, if I wanted to read some on theology, I could do that that moment, even though I'm tired, but it's a lot harder to do something that would actually take me sacrificing my comfort for somebody else. That's the temptation in all of us, but that's me. What about you? What are some of yours that you may struggle with? Let me just give you some examples. It's easy to theologically defend the life of the unborn. That's easy. Let me tell you, it's much harder to care for the fatherless. It's a lot harder to do life on life with women and children in crisis so you can show them that there's another option besides abortion. It's a lot harder to spend your time getting involved in places like heart change or safe families or adoption or the foster care system. That's a lot harder. Does your beliefs produce action? Or let me give you another example. It's easy to quote Bible verses on diversity. That's easy. It's a hot topic right now. We all against racism. That's easy. It's a lot harder to love somebody who looks different than you. It's a lot harder to love on somebody whose culture is completely different than yours. It's a lot harder to love somebody who votes different than you. Or when you're offended or hurt by brother or sister, instead of you retreating or lashing out back at them, you can speak the truth in love and endure for the sake of the unity of the church. That's harder. Does your beliefs produce action? Or it's easy to go to church on Sunday. That's the easy part to, to listen to a sermon. That's easy to do that on Sunday. It's a lot harder Monday through Saturday to live life in community with others, to make yourself available to other people, to give them complete access to your life, to join a small group and say, hey, brother or sister, if you need me, let me know. I'll be there for you. I'll pray for you. I'll live in community in such a way that you can ask me hard questions and I'll respond and vice versa. Does your beliefs produce action? As the American proverb goes, talk is cheap. Or as James says it in chapter one, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Saving faith has and always will work through the lives of believers in such a way that the Spirit produces in them good works. Right believing must produce right living. The two are not in opposition. 
The Christian is called to champion both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The two cannot be a contradiction lest we divide the person and work of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, think about Jesus. Jesus had this perfect, robust theology. He was the theologian's theologian. Yet that's the same thing that led him to care for people so well. This is the same Jesus that could spend time and get caught with the tax collectors and sinners, yet at the same time, he never compromised truth. Therefore, let me caution another side, another group of people. If you're hearing this and you're like, Jeff, I'm with you, bro. All four works. Let's do these good works and love on people. Praise God that you have that feeling. But I want to caution you. If your loving people leads you away from faith in God, beloved, that is not a genuine love for people, but that is idolatry. If your love for people leads you away from God, it is not a genuine love for people. Because if you genuinely love people, you will love them in the way that their creator calls them to be loved. Because he knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. So how does saving faith work? Saving faith works by producing a continued love for God and a continued love for your neighbor. Or in other words, true saving faith will most, it will definitely show in your actions. Third, final point, a third and final question. What is dead faith? What is dead faith? We'll pick back up in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not produce works, is dead. Now, beloved, this is the crux of James' warning. If your faith does not produce works, it is dead. It is inactive. But church, I don't want you to misconstrue James' tone in this text. This isn't that, hey, turn or burn text, or James, James is like, hey, you're going to hell. That's not James' heart in this text. I don't want you to miss that. James' warning is way closer to the way you will warn someone whom you love how you have warned someone that you truly care about and you see them headed a direction that will ultimately harm them. So there's a brother, one of our actually fellow pastors, uh, Mark Skydema, let us do to death. If anybody here knows Mark Skydema, he's probably one of the godliest guys in here. Now, I love Mark, man. We're talking, doing our regular check-ins, and, and we're just chopping it up, and, and we're just talking about passages where it's hard, but there's a warning. I'm like, man, Mark, how does that kind of drop or, or just feel to you? And he's like, man, Jeff, it kind of reminds me of this story with my son that happened. My son was three years old at the time. We always told him, don't run out into the street, hold mommy or daddy's hand. And one day, they're leaving out of the pizza shop and their son jets for the street. And Mark in angst reaches out, grabs his son. He grabs him, and I'm sure his son was shocked because Mark grabbed him as hard as he could to keep him from going into the street for his destruction. And at the moment he grabs him, a car comes flying by. Now, if you can imagine this three-year-old child, I'm sure he was shocked at the time. He still remembers it to this day. But that's love. His loving shock or warning wasn't to harm him, but was to keep his son from utter destruction. That's the heart of James' warning. James, because he loves us, he knows that, hey, church, we have to be mindful of this. The same way you would lovingly tell this to a friend or a loved one is the heart of this text. And with that same heart, I want to give you a couple realities of dead faith and what it looks like. First, dead faith is only for show. This is why James 
He, he dwells on this thought of not talking the talk, not just talking the talk, but also walking the walk. Why? Because dead faith loves to look good in front of people. Dead faith loves to get praise from man and to look good in front of eyes, but either in their heart or behind the scenes, living like pagans, living like unbelievers. Or this is what Jesus said when he rebuked the Pharisees for such things. Matthew 23, 27 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Dead faith loves to put on a show. Second, dead faith ruins witness. This is what the Apostle Paul, an Israelite, says about his Israel brothers and sisters. Romans 2.24 says, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Why does Paul say that? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, remember the people of Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Other nations were meant to look at Israel, the covenant people of God, see the way that they loved one another and honored God and say, man, I want a piece of that. I want to be a part of this community. They were meant to be a light. But what happens instead? Israel becomes looking like the actual pagan nations they were meant to be set apart from. And this is why Paul says the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of the Israel's conduct. Now, let me address some brothers and sisters in this room who, who may actually be non-believers. If someone invited you to this church, if one of your families or friend invited you, praise God, we're actually glad you're really here. But I don't want you to look at Christians and therefore judge Christ. And when I say Christians, I mean professing Christians, people who take the name of Jesus and now you see their horrible conduct, the way that they don't love on people, they're very angry and hateful, they live just like the rest of the world and take the name of Jesus. I don't want you to look at that and somehow mistake that that is who Christ is or that's what a gospel-transformed community looks like. This is something I struggled with when I first came to faith. I came to faith when I was about 16 or 17 years old, and one of the things I struggled with is there were many people who took the name of Christian, yet they looked the same as me. And, and I did it myself. I remember being younger. I walked down, said the prayer, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then I lived as if Jesus wasn't nobody. That's not what a true gospel-transformed community is. True Christians who've understood the gospel, their lives will show what they believe. But dead faith ruins witness. Third, Dead faith can sound alive, but in actuality still be dead. It is a scary reality that there are people who claim the name of Jesus, champion this big God theology. They can argue theology or teach theology and wow the most of them, yet deep down they do not know Jesus. Christian writer and speaker Amin Hudson says it this way, ability doesn't equal righteousness. Being able to articulate deep doctrine and theology does not equal transformation. There will be some people in hell who can articulate theology and preach better sermons than some who are in heaven. This is the reality of what dead faith does. It can sound real good. It can articulate these weighty options. But if the heart has not produced change, it is still dead. Fourth, dead faith disobeys God. Dead faith has no desire to obey God's commandments. God's commandments are a burden to them. Instead of finding joy in doing things God's way, 
they're always looking for loopholes to get around it. Or they're trying to get the blessings of God without the sacrifice of Jesus saying, anyone who will come to me, let him take up his cross daily. Dead faith does not want to obey the commandments of God. Titus 1, 16 says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Fifth, and finally, dead faith ultimately leads to eternal death. Turn with me actually to Matthew chapter 7. Look at Matthew chapter 7 as we get ready to close, and we'll put it on the screen. Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 21 to 23. The text says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is how Jesus defines dead faith. Now, I don't want you to make the mistake to think that Jesus is talking about atheists or people who does not profess faith in Jesus. That's not the crowd he's talking about right here. Jesus is talking to people who would identify themselves as Christians. They call him Lord, Lord. They would identify as being a follower of him so much. They've even done some good works, it looks like, in his name. Yet what does Jesus say? Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness and sin. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I knew you at one point in time, and then I stopped knowing you. That's not what he says. He says, I never knew you. This is what a dead faith does. Never truly having transformation and truly living for God. And this is what Jesus talks about. Dead faith is a facade of authenticity that will lead to judgment lest that person repent of their sins and surrender their whole life to Jesus. Let me leave you with two simple applications. First, Take an honest evaluation of where your faith tends to gravitate towards. If, you've, if you are a believer and you've trusted in Jesus, praise God, brother or sister. But, but look at trends of where your faith tends to lean. Matter of fact, use this as a conversation over lunch. Ask your siblings or your brothers or sisters, your friends or, or your family or whoever you're with. Say, hey, when you look at my faith, where does my faith tend to lean more? Do I lean more towards thoughts and speech, like contemplating the things of God, or do you see me lending more towards actions? Remember, both of these are good things. They're not to be separated. But if you ask this question and something like that, I mean, I know you believe in Jesus, man, but you tend so much more on the work sides that you don't really contemplate as much on the thinking and having right doctrine. If that's the case, say, okay, you know what? Praise God for you seeing that. Let me work on it. Let me make sure I'm doing something like theological boot camp with Brad Burchant. Let me make sure I'm getting in Bible studies and small groups and learning the word. Or if you're on the opposite side and you can contemplate like me, I love, theology is a good thing. I love it. Praise God for theology. But if you're so addicted to learning about God, but you're never getting off your seat in order to go with people, I would challenge you, take that truth, put it into action. Share the gospel with that neighbor that you've waited for so long to do it. 
Engage with different programs or places where you can serve and love on people. Get involved in the church. There's so many different ministries, but there ain't enough people to do them. Get involved. Second application. If at some point in this sermon you've listened and you're like, man, Jeff, if I'm honest, I'm afraid that my faith may be dead. I'm afraid that what you're talking about and what James is talking about, dead faith, that might be my reality. I was raised in a church and I heard all these things, but I don't really have a desire for God. I don't really find pleasure in doing things God ways. I don't even know why I'm here sometimes. If that's you, brother or sister, understand the sovereignty of God and you're not here for no reason. God in his gracious providence has you here for such a time like this. We have brothers and sisters in this church, pastors, elders, small group leaders, counselors, who would love to engage you and tell you what does it mean to truly believe in Jesus and how do you have a gospel transformation that affects not just one aspect of your life, but all areas. We would love to engage with that. Don't allow this feeling to just go over. As 2 Corinthians 13 chapter five says, uh, 13 verse five says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Now, I don't want you to just question your salvation because that'll somehow make you seem more righteous. That's not what I'm saying. But if you see your life not matching up to what the scripture says about a true Christian, brother or sister, don't take that lightly. And there's a lot of us who would love to help you wrestle and work through that. One of the stories in the Bible that I love the most regarding faith is the thief on the cross. This thief on the cross who probably had blasphemed God his whole life. And at the moment that he sees Jesus for who he truly is, he says, this man don't deserve this. We do. And what does Jesus do? Jesus sees his authentic faith. This thief on the cross didn't go out and live this elaborate life, but Jesus sees that he has authentic faith. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Our ultimate assurance of faith is that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of our Lord. That's where our hope is. Our faith didn't start because of us. And by the grace of God, our faith will not continue because of us, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that works within us. So with that, church, I encourage you to make sure that your faith is always producing action and good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this church that we're in, this body of believers. God, you take us and bring us from so many different aspects of life. But ultimately, the common thing that we hold on to is a gospel that works, a gospel that changes our heart and our minds, works in us to such a degree that we will love you better and we will love people more. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here those of you who may have been walking for years in this faith, that they would not grow weary in doing good works. And also for those, God, who may be troubled by the warning that James gives, but that you would utilize it to draw them unto yourself. God, and finally, for those who may not know you, have never known anything about you, that you would remind them of this glorious gospel that can save anyone and everyone to the ultimate most if they put their faith and trust in you. I pray that you will work as only you can. I pray this in Jesus' name.